This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, In the Beginning, and the author is Martha Elam, and Martha joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Martha. Hello, Steve. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing great, and it's going to be very interesting for all of us to understand this work, which you say God inspired you to write. In fact, you say that God wrote it through you. You call this book Divinely Inspired. I have written this book through my intuition by accessing the all-knowing divine mind. Since I have become aware of my spiritual gift, I feel so at one with God. Our living soul, the subconscious mind, is the spark of divinity that is our intuition. I feel so blessed because everything I desire to know comes to me when I need to know it. God is always guiding and directing me in everything I think. This book, in the beginning, it's one thing to think of all these things and to feel so close to God. What was the motivation, though, to write the book? Well, it was very interesting. In my 40s, the um, 30s to 40s, uh, I went to a psychic, and they told me I was going to be writing a book. And I said, me write a book? I don't even know anything to write about, and so I just left it at that. And then about 25 years ago, I can remember the exact moment in time when God, I was sitting at my desk in the morning, and he came to me and says, I want you to write a book. And I says, well, everything's already been written. He says, I know, I wrote it. He writes things through people. He talks through people. So it's always his word that he's communicating to us and through us. And so anyway, I says, okay, God, to make sure that it's coming from you, I would like to have the scripture pertaining to the subject matter. And so also I would like to have in the metaphysical dictionary the and also the revealing word, those are the two that is the metaphysical meanings. And so that's how comes that's referenced in the book is through the scripture. And my girlfriend said to me, Martha, how can you always have the perfect scripture for the paragraph? And I says, well, I ask God to reveal that to me. So whatever we ask God to do and believe, he will do. And the funniest thing happened to me one time when I was uh, writing out and saying anything that you ask for and believe, and it popped into my mind, if you doubt, you do without. And I was so astounded by that, I laughed, and I said, God, you have got the most beautiful sense of humor, and I enjoy you so much because I've written this many times in my life and read it many times, and I never got that beautiful message. If you do doubt, you do without. So here you are at the wonderful young age of 80 years, and you feel like you've just uh, started living. Oh, yes, indeed. It is the most beautiful time of my life. I have never experienced having so much inner peace and wisdom and understanding 
and this all-knowing mind always available to everyone that has developed their intuition has the ability to tune into this or tap into it. This is just the most beautiful time of my life because I am so at one with all the universe and everyone in the universe. Whenever you come from the feeling of divine love, you are in that oneness with everything, no matter if it's the birds. They they come and um, speak to me, and I talk to them, and they just sit there and, and listen and tweet, tweet back to me. And it's just a time in your life that you're in that oneness with everything and everyone, and you just feel the love. Now, in your synopsis of your book, you write this about, again, everyone, the title of her book is in the beginning you say god is revealing to us how to live the abundant life through his six days of creation now help us understand that well god in his six days of uh, creation wanted us to know so deeply within our being that this is a thought process everything that comes into our life we speak it into be and to begin into the being through our word. And it is through our word that we bring health or sickness or wealth or poverty, whatever the opposites are, you will always attract exactly what you're speaking because God spent his six days of creation as saying everything produces its like kind through the male and female principle. If you speak the word of the negativity or untruth, that's what you reap. If you plant a seed that is corn, you do not reap tomatoes. You reap its like kind. And God taught us this uh, scenario through his six days of creation. So when he said, let there be light, and there was light, when we say things, then you're uh, teaching us that through the power of our word, things are created. Correct. Everything is brought into being through the word. And God uh, showed us that through his six days of creation, that everything comes into being through the spoken word. Or if you think a word, as a man thinketh, so is he, as a man believeth, so is he. This is the law that God revealed in each of his creations. Explain the word as the male and female principle. The male is the, fem- is the, male is the word. The male principle, the male is the thought. Everything pertaining to the word or thought is is of God. Everything that is pertaining to the image is God. Everything that pertains to the likeness is the female, which takes the image and and brings it into the likeness of the image of the Word. And the image of the Word becomes the feeling. So when you have the thought... You always have to have the thought first before you can have a feeling. 
So this male and female principle works together in perfect harmony. Correct. Well, let's talk about punishment. Now, that is a very negative thing that we feel in in life. Uh, You say all punishment is self-punishment. Well, the Bible uh, speaks of that also. It says um, the tongue is a double-edged sword. It either blesses you or curses you. The same with our word. It either curses us or blesses us. If we use the words of truth, we live a life of health, wealth, happiness, joy, fulfilling relationships. And if we use the word of the untruth, we reap what we sow. And we reap sickness, poverty, like, limitation, chaos, all the things that goes with the negative connotation so is that, our punishment. So that kind of ties to, I guess we make life a whole, mo- a whole lot more complex than it really is. We can only make a life complex through our lack of faith in God. When we have faith in God and we know that he has prepared to meet our every need through the words we speak and say, and it's up to us if we want to use the words that have life and fulfillment and joy and happiness is our truth. If we use the untruth, which is the negative, uh, that is not of God. That is of man or the human being. So whatever we speak, we're bringing into being. If it's negative, it's going to be sickness. It's going to be everything you do not want. If you speak the positive words of our truth, it's going to be everything you could ever wish for and more because we're placing our faith in God. And God's Word is alive, and it goes before us and creates its like kind, bringing us the, uh, the abundant life. And that's why it's so important at this time for this book to come out. There's no accidents in the universe. I've been working on this book for 25 years. But all of a sudden, I had such a divine desire to just spend 24-7 writing this book and just doing nothing but concentrating on this book and getting it completed. And once that I completed it, it came to me the reason that I had such a, um attitude of gratitude to get this finished uh, in the perfect timing was that it is now we're going through so many so much turmoil and chaos in our life in the whole universe people are without jobs people are um, having a hard time now companies are having a hard time the states the schools it's all we're all connected, and what happens to one happens to the, uh, all of us. So we're all in this moment of chaos, so so to speak. Look at the weather. It is the worst we've ever experienced. So we are just in this, and the only way out is to put our faith back in God because he has created the abundant life for us and demonstrated it through his six days of creation that we have all of our needs met through our word of truth. So we need to decide what we want in our lives and then use gratitude and love to make it happen. 
love is is the most beautiful, powerful word in in our language because it is charismatic. It attracts. It pulls to it all of our good. If you live in love, you will never. Uh, have to worry uh, love and faith you will never have to worry about anything because you will ha- live the abundant life through the your love and faith in god so in the beginning when god created the heavens and the earth he said make man in our image so this image is uh, a very critical principle in in what you believe well the beautiful part about um God created man in his image and likeness. God is revealing to us that everything in our life is created through the same law. The image of our word always creates its like kind. If we are in the positive, like I said before, we uh, reap the positive health and all of our good. If we are in the negative, we reap everything we do not want. Sickness, chaos, turmoil, you name it, you got it. So to know ourselves, then, is the greatest gift we can give ourselves. To know ourselves, to know that we are a spiritual being having a human experience reveals to us that we are first spirit. When God created um, man, he first created man as the spirit of his word. Then the second part of man, God created man from the dust, which is our living soul. He breathed into this form, and it became a living soul. So the first part of our creation is God created our mind, our words. We were created in his image and likeness. God is mine. God is the word. God is everything. So God has given us this ability to tap into the divine mind and live from this abundant life of his word. So we need to depend on him and not live our lives expecting things or other people to fill our needs. No, because God bless the other people. They are trying to, it's like a person swimming. They have not got the energy to swim up across the lake dragging someone. I mean, they can do it if there's, if there's a need for it. But we all have to support ourselves in our thoughts and our feelings and move into the direction of our truth or we do not know ourselves because we're not giving ourselves the ability to know that we are first spirit and secondly the form of the human body which transports our spirit and so that's our whole truth is that we are a spiritual being having a human experience and most of us think we're a human being having a human experience and that's where the uh, problem comes in. We don't know ourselves the ti- as a spiritual being. The title of the book, In the Beginning, the author, Martha Elam. Martha, tell us how to get your book. I have a w- beautiful website on um, uh, MarthaElam.com, 
and you can go to this website and order the book. And if you have any trouble, uh, send me an email by Martha Elam at consolidated.net, and I will make sure that you receive a book. MarthaElam.com, M-A-R-T-H-A-E-L-A-M.com. Well, Martha, we appreciate you being with us on Author Talk. Oh, it was my pleasure, and thank you, and God bless you abundantly. And one thing I didn't mention to you is that I am 80 years old, and my whole life is wanting the best for everyone, and I want for them what I want for myself. And that is having it all. And um, I just want to see everybody reaching out to everybody in love and gratitude. They will have it all. And thank you so much. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on Toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions. Helping you identify the real problems and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence and, more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teaches how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Y'all wave your hands, look who's on, it's the Cody Mankeith and he's number one. Now you might think Juan's youth was sad, right. cause he had a death kill mommy and dad. Right. But that ain't the case, nope. it wasn't his fate, nope. the Juan's never struggled to communicate. Ha. Y'all wave your hands, look who's on, it's the Cody Mankeith and he's number one. It's That Keith Wine Show on Toginet.com, Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central. Every week, That Keith Wine Show will have guests that share their experiences, expertise, opinions, and personal lives with us to hopefully help us better understand others. The topics and guests will come from the American Sign Language community. For more on Keith Wine and the show, go to his website, KeithWannWann.com. Listen with an open mind and willingness to learn and help with the cultural bridge. Number, number one, Keith's number one. Everybody back because the code of man. Don't miss that Keith Wan show Wednesday nights at eight seven central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. It's not like uh, you folks up there that you know. Hey, oh, this is nothing. The title of the book, The Best of the Bargain, Lincoln in Western New York, and the author, John Fagant. And John joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, John. Oh, hi, Steve. How are you doing today? Well, doing great. And this is a great story uh, about Abraham Lincoln, his inaugural train ride uh, from the Midwest all the way to Washington, D.C., and you take a specific look at a couple of days of that journey. Let me read a couple of things you've written 
about your book. The Best of the Bargain brings back a chronicle of long ago. The antidotes, the people, and events making this a fascinating read of a long-lost story of Buffalo in western New York. It is not a local history book as much as it is a story within the history of the region. It's a story that details three days of Lincoln's inaugural journey as it passes through Buffalo and the surrounding regions. Well, obviously, you must love history, and that may must be one of the reasons you wanted to do this. Uh, why the focus on Lincoln? Well, the focus on Lincoln has been there my whole life, and the connection was Lincoln and my fascination with local Western New York history. Eventually, the two just came together. And and I have to say that maybe it came about with David Donald's Lincoln, which was out in the mid '90s. In there, he makes a little uh, premise in there. He says, he says something about uh, Lincoln visiting the falls in 1848, and then I read his footnotes, and it said maybe he didn't visit then. So that got my that perked my interest. Well, did he or didn't he? So I, I, I went from there, and a few years later, I started the um, uh, research on it, and eventually that took me into the inaugural journey through the area. And um, that was uh, part of the the main passion for getting me going on this, anyways. And also, you're a tour guide, historical tour guide of the area. I am. I'm part of a, a group, uh, two groups. One group uh, has the Darren Martin House, which is uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, Prairie House complex of 1905, which is a worldwide. Uh, uh, stru- uh, just a fascinating structure for for all right fans to see, and the and the second one is uh, the group called Buffalo Tours, which does various tours of the city. It could be neighborhoods. Uh, uh, I do more on the waterfront and a couple of the waterfront villages, uh, some of the grain elevators, uh, and, uh, and there's also one on uh, what would Delaware Avenue, which is uh, our Millionaire's Row from the Gilded Ages. So I've uh, I've developed. Uh, a fascination with the area over the years, and uh, in the Lincoln part of it, I toss in there whenever I can. There's really not much here to see when Lincoln was here. There's still there's still one church left that exists, but that's the only structure when Lincoln was here that still exists. So when I pass it, I'll, I'll throw I'll, I'll toss out the story about Lincoln. Well, this month, February 2011, uh, marks the 150th anniversary of Lincoln's inaugural journey from Springfield, Illinois, to Washington, D.C. So we're in your book, you focus on a couple of nights that uh, he spent, one in Buffalo, and then, uh, well, let's see, uh, one, well, in, that, one in Buffalo, right? Well, actually, it was two in Buffalo. Two in Buffalo, all right. Yeah, the, I, uh, I focus on a three-day period, uh, February 16th, 17th, and 18th. Uh, Lincoln had a 12-day journey, and, and only two of those, he stopped at, and only two of the cities did he stop at for two nights. Buffalo was one of those, and New York City was also the other city where he stopped for two nights. And, uh, and there, there may have been a couple of reasons for the Buffalo trip. One, it was midway through it. Uh, secondly, well, he did come here on a Saturday, and he weren't going to travel on a Sunday, so he stayed Saturday, Sunday. But a third a third. Uh, what I found very interesting point to it was he was um, Lincoln did want to meet and uh, talk to Millard Fillmore, who was the former president, and he was from Buffalo, and Fillmore had retired back to Buffalo, and uh, so Fillmore, although he was not a Republican, did greet Lincoln, and he acted as a host uh, for the president-elect and his family while they were here, 
So that, that's kind of an, uh, quite an interesting take on it because uh, Phil, well, because Fillmore has lost his luster over the years. But in that day, Lincoln thought very highly of Fillmore, as did his wife, Mary. Now, this journey, obviously, by train, and there was a uniqueness to traveling by train that allowed Lincoln, because of his down-home kind of personality, to really, uh, I guess, become uh, very well-known among the people. There, he made a great connection. Uh, his, the five-minute stops along the way were just his, uh, just his perfect uh, uh, spot for him to make a connection with the people. He was a relative unknown at this point. Very few photographs had existed of him in 1861. There had been drawings, uh, lithographs and such, but people were very curious, not only because, because was he really as ugly as they say he was, but also because he was from the West. And out, out in the West, well, Illinois was West at that point, uh, he was not well known. And also because the states, uh, the, some southern states had seceded at this point, so the country was in a grave, gravest situation of its uh, history. So there was tremendous curiosity about this uh, new president on his way to Washington. He wasn't that well known. And and on the way, they made the five-minute wooden water stops in various towns and villages before hitting the major cities. And in those towns and villages, he made he would go out in the back and just make a little two- or three-minute talk back there, usually saying something pretty humorous, and getting the people laughing and making a connection in that way. But there are also some incidents that happened along there. One of the, probably the most uh, famous of them all would be the, uh, the stop in Westfield, New York, which is uh, just above the Pennsylvania line, just a little north of Erie, Pennsylvania. The, um, uh, he stopped in Westfield, and that's where he met the little girl, Grace Bedell, who had written to him a couple months earlier asking him to grow a beard. And that was... Probably, that may have been the highlight of the whole tour. Lincoln actually came down from the train, went into the crowd, met the girl, and it was, it was as the reporters were saying, it was, they were all, everybody was in awe, and just uh, it was just a wonderful event. He, he shook her hand, gave her a kiss, and asked her how he liked, his, how he liked the beard. And then he went back on the train and left. But uh, it was, um, that's probably the most dramatic story. But there were many, uh, there were other stories as well. And uh, why did she want him to grow a beard? She wanted him to grow a beard because she had seen a picture of him in October as he was on the uh, Republican Party line. And he did not have a beard at that point. And she thought he looked scrawny. <laughs> so, so her brothers and father had beards. She thought that looked good. So she wrote, she was only 12 years old, so she wrote a, a letter to Lincoln asking him, this would be in October, asking him, would you please grow a beard? Interestingly, she wrote it October 15th. She sent it out the 15th. Lincoln responded October 19th. That's only four days later. 1861, the mail's going pretty good at that point. I, I'm, Better that was, than today. <laughs> well, that was one of my surprises. I said, my gosh, that's great. How'd they do this? Yes. Right, so within a week, she has her answer. It's uh, really quite good. But um, Was he that self-conscious about his looks? Oh, he knew very well how he looked, but he dealt with it over his years. And uh, he, he, he knew how to, um, in fact, the title, The Best of the Bargain, has to do with uh, a joke uh, about himself. He, he, stops, uh, he, he stopped at maybe, uh, maybe at 10 different uh, towns where he used the line. He would come out, he'd look at the crowd and say, uh, I, I guess you're here to see me, and I'm here to see you. 
But in that arrangement, I have the best of the bargain. And the implication was that, well, you're looking at a pretty ugly guy here. And, uh, of course, the crowd would laugh at that. But he uh, he had dealt with his um, his looks many years le- prior, and um, uh, it was... Uh, it was something that, uh, over time, he, he he used to his advantage, as he said. When he, uh, in fact, uh, as he was coming east, many of the newspapers mention after he has gone through their town, they say, "Well, well, he wasn't nearly as ugly as we thought he was going to be." <laughs> uh, which is another interesting little bit there. So, uh, so maybe it helped him in one sense that he had the um, the. the the, the, the view that this is right. one ugly president we're going to have here. Right, right. Well, he wasn't easily uh, forgotten, that's for sure. And Absolutely. He was striking in his appearance and, of course, striking in his ability to uh, talk to the people. I guess, a, as you put it, a priceless political gift. Absolutely. Uh, he had that. Uh, he, um, he could deal, with, as I said, you know, just saying a one-liner at the wooden water stop. These are people that did not know him before the train pops in there, he comes out, says a couple words. He's got them laughing. He has them feeling comfortable. He takes off, and you know they go home thinking, "Well, you know he's he's a, he's a good guy. He's one of us." And uh, at, at, at the cities where he stayed overnight, he gave a much more serious uh, sure. speech. Right. But but you know at the um, at the five minute stops, he was just ad living. You know, didn't if a line worked at one stop, he would use it at the next. You know, <laughs> you know, like any sure. uh, any good politician, right? Absolutely, yes. yes. So it was it, it, it was quite interesting following that whole uh, series of uh, uh, comments as he goes from town to town. So what happens when he? I don't even know where this is, but uh, mm-hmm. I guess he has a hard time getting a room, and uh, some lady uh, gives up her room so yes. he can have the finest room at the hotel. Tell us that's yes the. Uh, uh, that would be in that would have been in Buffalo. He arrived in Buffalo about four thirty on Saturday the sixteenth, and they uh, they went through a mob scene to get to their carriages, and the carriages had a parade through the grounds, and they went to the American Hotel. He went inside, he, he gave a talk from up top, and then they took him to his room. And the American Hotel was one of the top hotels in the city at that time. Now, the, the, prior to Lincoln coming. The, uh, the proprietor was a bit nervous. He didn't know because all the best rooms were taken. Many times during the the winter, many people would come in from the countryside and just take a, a hotel, rent out a hotel for the winter. And and this was a case of Mrs. Richard Sherman and her husband. Her husband was out of town for this week, but Mrs. Richard Sherman had the best room in the hotel, which which at that time is the one of the lower rooms. It's either the first floor or the it's either the lobby floor or the first floor up, you know, because this is pre-elevator days. So the lower you are, the better you are. And she she told the proprietor she'll give her room up and move to one of the upper rooms. And she did so. And uh, the Lincolns moved in there. They were told that a lady had given up her room, and they were very pleased with the room. They said, uh, they probably said this everywhere, but they, but they said it here that this was the best room they'd ever had so far on the train ride. And they wanted to meet the lady, and they did. Later that night, they did meet the lady. They gave it up, but she had an interesting uh, idea. She put before she left the room to the Lincoln. She put a blank book in there, uh, an autograph type book, and she was hoping that the president would sign it. 
Now, after Lincoln's left on Monday morning, she went in, she and her friends looked for the book. They couldn't find it. There was nowhere to be seen. They said, oh, no, somebody took the book. It's gone. A couple days later, the book came back in the mail. Lincoln had taken it to Albany with the idea of getting everybody's signature in it. He signed it initially, and then he passed it on to the others in the party. They all signed it, and then he sent it back to her. And that that book is in the uh, Buffalo and Erie County Historical Society. I've I've seen it a couple of times. It's uh, it still exists to this day. So it, it's it's a nice little story. He created a lot of excitement, didn't he, along the way? Very much. I mean, there, there's. I mean, you even mentioned mobs. The mobs were out of control. This this was this was when security did not know. They did not know how much security they needed. And it was getting out of control more and more as they went farther on. There was a, there was issues in Indianapolis, the first stop at the at the hotel. There were issues at Xenia, uh, Ohio, people overrunning and eating the food that was supposed to be for the uh, for the party on the train. There and all along the way, the mobs were getting a little bit rougher. As they were coming into Buffalo, though, it was it was massive. And one of the Cleveland reporters on the train says, one mile out, they start seeing masses of people on the trains, and they're getting nervous. They're wondering, is there going to be security when we get to the train station? And un- uh, unfortunately for him, he was he was right in his concerns, because as they pulled into the train station, uh, the, he said, the right couple of the writers said, people were mopping the train. They were pounding on top of it. They were trying to get in. It was it was just a mass of... Uh, uh, massive hysteria, I guess you could call it. So finally... They did, uh, Millard Fillmore met Lincoln at the back of the train, and uh, the militia opened up a small little gateway, a walkway, to the entrance. But as soon as Lincoln stepped down from the train, the mass, the mob, just urged forward. They both blew forward. They moved in hundreds towards him and backwards, and everybody swaying back and forth. Someone said they could see Lincoln and Fillmore swaying and and you know it, it's out of control and fortunately a couple of the security guys were able to get him out and into the um into the carriages and fortunately no one no one died although a couple of people were injured in this but after this uh because of this uh, when when the train went to albany uh, the uh, they refused to get off the train until the crowd was controlled. So they t- started taking different measures later on. But it was a it was a time of uh, no one had really dealt with crowds of this size before, this immensity. So yes, it was a whole new uh, feature to um, American life, American history, presidential history. The title of the book: The Best of the Bargain, Lincoln in Western New York, and the author is John Fagant. John, tell us how to get your book. Well, right now we have a couple of ways. It is on Amazon, Amazon.com. It is also on the Barnes & Noble website, BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, a third way would be through the Author House website. Those three ways are available at this moment. Well, we want to thank you, John, for being with us on Author Talk. Okay, thank you for having me. John Fagant, author of his book, The Best of the Bargain, Lincoln in western New York. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages.
People think I've made it. I'm popular. I seem happy all the time. I have great clothes and I'm involved in everything. But I have questions, doubts, and fears just like every other teenager. That's why I'm glad for Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. Join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. The choices we have to make that can alter the course of our lives. Life is too much pressure if we try to go it alone. I tune in to Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell every week to get reminded that I'm not alone. Nicole O'Dell is an expert on what happens in the lives of teenagers. Join her as she deals with topics like peer pressure, purity, drugs, alcohol, and many other things that might come up along the way. She writes books and speaks to people all over the place, but she says her favorite moments are when she can pull up a chair and chat with teens about what's important to us. For more information on Nicole and her books, go to NicoleO'Dell.com. Then join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on Toginet.com. Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Naked, This is My Story, This is Our Song. And the author is Dr. Leslie Masters, and Dr. Masters joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Leslie. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, this story is right to the point, right to the heart of your whole life. Uh, You call it true, real, and raw. Let me read a couple of things you've written. Naked is the true story of Leslie Masters, a 45-year-old physician, single mom of three, soccer mom, cheer and gymnastics coach, cosmetic medicine expert, entrepreneur, small business owner, imperfect, spiritual human being. As she tells her story in the first person singular, Dr. Master lures the reader into the mind-boggling and at times bewitching trail of recovery and discovery. Well, this is your life. This is the the old TV show, right? <laughs> oh, boy, it would be quite a TV show, wouldn't it? <laughs> all the skeletons, do they come out of the closet in your book? Uh, all, every one of them. Every all one of them. All the skeletons come out. You wow. Know, and, it, you know, that's what I, that, I wrote the book. There's some bold print, and that's my story. And uh, the regular print, that is a lot of philosophic thought about why we should tell our stories and what the need is to tell our stories. Hmm. A need, huh? A need. You know, actually, I write in the book, you know, how, what comfort we'd bring if we would share our secrets with one another. Mm-hmm. Because we, you realize that you're not quite so as, as unique as you thought. And also, you're not alone. There's others that struggle with the same thing. Oh, absolutely. There's not one thing you've gone through that somebody else hasn't gone through, too. And we tend to keep it in and hide it and hope nobody finds out. And the truth is, we're really giving a gift if we tell it out loud and share our stories with somebody else because they need to hear it. It brings comfort. And so that's what I, I, you know, 
I'm not sure I set out to write about that. That's just what the book turned into. Well, it, it sounds very philosophical on your part, but here in the real world, you have really done it. You've not only talked about it and how important it is, you've gone out and set the example. So what was the, how did you muster the courage? You know, to be honest with you, there are parts of my story that I wrote that I have never, as of this day, gone back and reread because there were parts of my story that were that hard to dig out. Mm. Um, you know, I was in a horrible car accident when I was 15 and spent 10 years recovering, you know, 50 operations and wow. hospital after hospital recovering from this horrible accident. And uh, w- once I did recover and got back on my feet and life was going good, I had a horrible chronic pain from this accident and became addicted to narcotics, which mm. is not a good thing for anybody, but especially for a physician. And I, I had to tell some of the most, and I say I had to, I had to tell some of the, the most traumatic parts of my story, some of the things I wish I could erase and wish didn't happen. Um, those parts of my story, because I think those are the parts that, that bring comfort. And those are the parts, they bring comfort to other, and they help me heal. So I guess that's why the DEA showed up at your office. Yeah, you read the first couple <laughs> pages there. Uh, absolutely, you know, when someone else gets addicted, people have an intervention, and your family tries to help get you back on the right track. When a physician becomes addicted, the DEA shows up in your office. Mm. And, uh, you know, that was a day that I... In my mind, is gone. I've gone through a million times. Had I shared it with anybody? No. You know, I hadn't shared exactly what happened and what was said and how it how it all played out. And so I decided to write it because um, if I'm going to encourage people to tell their stories and to share share themselves with others, then I've got to be willing to do the same. And I, you know, it was a catharsis to write the book, and it was it was healing. Sure. It definitely was therapeutic. Therapeutic writing, absolutely, and that's um, that's what I focused on. And all I started to write, and then I what what came out was, you know, I had spent all of my college years, you know, I'm trying to get into medical school, so I'm taking the science and the math and everything I need to get into medical school. But every one of my electives were theology, philosophy, religion, and so I was able to pull a lot of that into it and a lot of my own personal philosophy into into the book and um and and that's it, it ended up being really a primer on tell your story tell it out loud to another human being and i think um in doing so i was able to tell mine and that's what i needed to do well you write dr masters storytelling will make you laugh make you cry and introduce you to emotions you have not known before. You know, and that was a little teaser written on the book that came after several people had written it. And I got a letter from a friend saying, you know, I laughed, I cried, I cheered, I felt every range of emotion. And that's, and I, I wanted to say, yes, that, that's the goal. That's what I was trying to achieve, is I wanted to write a book that's entertaining, that keeps you riveted, that that makes you want to keep reading, that makes you think. And um, so I, I saved my little letters from my my early editors. So we start when? Uh, where does the story start? 
Well, how I wrote my story throughout the book is, as I told parts of my story that were relevant to the philosophy I was talking about at the time. Not so, so much chronological then. Correct. My story's not chronological. I start with one of the most recent events that I tell about, which is addiction and recovery. And then I go back to when I was 15 years old and growing up in Huron, South Dakota, a town of 12,000 people in the middle of nowhere, in a very idyllic childhood, and um, start telling my story then. And that's when I was in a, a, a horrific car accident. And lots of people have been in horrific car accidents and have gone through horrible things. Uh, I'm not sure many of them write their story about it, but it changed my life forever. And it, it's the realization at 45 that, wow, you know, that accident that day changed everything for me for the rest of my life. It wasn't uh, get over it, recover, and everything will be fine. I live with it every single day, and I will for the rest of my life. And um, and so it was instr- it's, it was instrumental. It's a traumatic story. It's an interesting story to hear. But that what's most interesting about it is how it changed me forever. Is and, that the most important part of your book? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> what I would be? What would be then? The most important part of my book is is trying to get the message out that we all have a need, and I I really mean need, to tell our stories to connect with other human beings, and you know, I I think the key is we all have a need to get right with ourselves, to get right with God, to get right with other people, and when we do that, there's a sense of freedom in living in the now as popular quote goes um there's a sense of freedom that comes from that we aren't we aren't tethered to the past and full of resentments about the past and we aren't afraid of the future and you know i I, in the book i call it pre-worrying that so many of us pre-worry about the future that i'm going to start worrying now over stuff that hasn't even happened and that's how so many of us live that we're 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 either angry about the past and stuck in that, or else we're already worried and stressed out about the future and stuck in that, instead of feeling free to live right now and be where we are right now. And I think you can be where you are right now and feel free to live where you are right now when you're, like I said, you're right with yourself, you're right with God, and you're right with other people, no matter who your God is. And I, and I emphasize that over and over and again. I don't care if you believe in the doorknob. As long as you believe there is a God and you're not it, I think is what's key. And you're part of a community. And you're part of a community, right. You know, none of us can live in a vacuum. I, I write this in the book. There's a, a lot of research and about the existential vacuum of young people nowadays. You know, their, their main complaint, the main reason we go to a therapist in 2011 is not phobias and fears and all sorts of things that used to affect us that were our main, should I say, our main purpose to visit a therapist in the past, our main purpose to visit therapists today are a sense of emptiness, a sense of meaninglessness, a sense of loneliness. Um, that Those sort of things are the reason people in 2011 go visit a therapist and reach out for help. It's, they, they feel empty. They feel meaningless. There's There's got to be a purpose in your life. And I think that part of that purpose is connecting with others. We can't live in this little vacuum alone. Every single thing I do today is in the context of a relationship with somebody. And we live in this technological world where we can contact people in a split split second, but we seem to be disconnected 
because we're really not one-on-one, face-to-face as much. Correct. You know, it puts it puts the, the onus on us that if I'm going to talk to people all day long via email, text message, whatever I'm going to do, I have to make sure that person is a person to me because it's so easy to send emails and say exactly how we feel because I don't have to look you in the face and right. say what I think of you. Yeah. And so it's easy to let that that sort of technology dehumanize whoever we're talking to. And so the onus is on us to make sure Facebook and Twitter and emails and all this stuff, we realize that there's a person on the other end of that and that we are part of a community. You know, this, this social, uh, the social network, the, the big movie out now and the, the origination of Facebook, I think, it, and the success of Facebook tells us that, you know, we do like to be connected. We do want to know what everybody else is doing, and we do like to share with everybody what we're up to and what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and as you put it, people just want to feel better. Exactly. That was probably the biggest impetus to say, okay, Leslie, it's time, write your book. Because I've always wanted to write a book. I always I felt that calling for as long as I can remember. But what really got me to write that book is this. When I finally recovered from my addiction and got back to work, I didn't go back to work as a medical oncologist, which is how I'm trained. I opened a cosmetic medicine clinic and started just doing the easy, the fluff is what I call it. All the things that we don't need but we want. But what I realized is that time and time again, I would have people come in here, and they wouldn't say, can you make my waist smaller or my wrinkles smoother? They would say, you know, I don't know what I want. I just want to feel better. And that's, I felt like, wow, I've got something to offer here because that, I know, is how all of us feel at one time or another. I don't know what I need or what I want. I just want to feel better. And a lot of that is inside work. It's not outside work. And so that's that's what got me thinking and got me writing is I just want to feel better. And I think that's our way in, you know, it's sort of like having a bad hair day. It's our way in 2011 saying it's just not cool to say I have this sense of emptiness. Uh, what, we're, what we're saying is it's something that's not quite right. I want to feel better. And I think to do that means we've got to stop and look back and explore our stories of as how they've been written up to this point in our lives and decide, am I going to write the rest of my story going forward or am I going to just be plopped in the middle of this great big technological machine that just keeps whirling around me? And and we can make a decision to write our stories going forward and to to live our lives the way we want to live them. It's There's just nothing more tragic than looking back and saying, wow, the whole decade of my 30s I wasted you know, I was 50 pounds overweight, I never exercised, I didn't do this, I didn't do this, and and you realize that, wow, time flies by really fast, and there's no time like the present to, to like yourself and like your life. The title of the book, Naked, This Is My Story, This Is My Song, the author is Dr. Leslie Masters, and I guess you took your title literally with the cover. Uh, yes, I did. You know, <laughs> well, not quite literally, didn't I? Yeah. You know, I. It was such a perfect name for the book, and as I got to thinking about it, I'm saying, what kind of picture can I put on the cover? What tells my story in a picture? 
And that's all I could think of. What tells my story in a picture are all the scars that cover my body mm. from these 50-some operations. That, that's my story in a picture. And that's so the, the, the cover and the title are very metaphoric and, and literal. So you have a great philosophy learned through the journey of life, and now your desire is to share it with everyone and to help them. And so your goal, I guess, is to get people to talk, to get people to write, because you've experienced feeling better from doing it. Exactly. Get people to talk, get people to write, get people to connect. Maybe it's just to get people to be conscious of, be alert and aware of where you are right here, right now, and, and, and what, what's dictating and directing my life. Is it the past? Is it the future? Or am I here right now and actually living? You think you'll write more? Absolutely. Actually, I've, I've written a wellness and a wholeness plan and published two new books since I've published Naked. And they aren't books like Naked that took me years to write. These are books that I I pounded out pretty quick. They're kind of workbooks for this wholeness plan that many of my patients come in and and get on. And I enjoyed writing those. And as soon as I started writing those, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I've got another book coming. I'm sure of it. So absolutely, I'll write more. Well, tell us how to get your book. Uh, My book is available uh, on all the dot-coms, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Borders. It's also available on my website, which is drlesliemasters.com. drlesliemasters.com. That's right. Well, thanks, Leslie. Thanks for being on Author Talk. All right. Well, thank you for having me, Steve. It's been a great pleasure to be here. That was Dr. Leslie Masters. She is the author of her book, Naked. This is my story. This is our song.